Hey guys, how you doing? Good. Good. All right. How was breakfast? Delicious. <laughs> Mine was good. I went out with the family, so Mine was non-existent. <laughs> I had oatmeal. You did. Mm, okay. I did. Welcome I back did. to the conversation. Really quickly, let's go around again and introduce ourselves in all seriousness. Let's start with Daniel. Strongest of pastors. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm Daniel. I am the strongest Avenger. pastor uh, responsible for worship and prayer here at Christ Community Church. My name is Jeff. I'm the senior pastor responsible for preaching and teaching and leadership and general ex- excellence. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. My name is Josh Hoy, um, and I'm an intern here. My name is James Peterson. I'm the pastor at Ryrie Chapel, and my responsibilities are everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm Patrick Murphy, pastor of adult discipleship and outreach, and I'm really excited about it. Yay. I'm Ryan Patty, and I oversee our youth and family ministry here. Right on. Welcome, guys. Okay, chapter two of the book. I'm sure you've all read it and had a chance to digest it. Uh, and what I want to start with today is kind of his opening question. Uh, how has it become possible in our society today for a doctor to face legal prosecution, to face legal action at the suggestion that one's mind, that is their psychiatric state, needs to be brought into alignment with their body? So if a doctor suggests that a person who is suffering with body dysmorphia or thinks that they're a trans, for example, that they need to bring their mental state in alignment with their body, which is what they did, you know, 50, 70 years ago. Mm. How is it possible that a doctor that suggests that today, a person who is dealing with a, or struggling with a psychiatric condition, needs to bring their mental state in alignment with their body to be prosecuted to face legal action? What are the things in our society that have contributed to that? And so the first thing that he mentions here, it seems to me, is a philosophy. Hmm. And I think it starts with a philosophy of personhood, which really kind of starts in the, in the teachings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm-hmm. And also, I would say, while he does not mention this, uh, extends into a philosophy of education. A philosophy of education, which is starting in the 1890s, took over Amer- the American education system. So let's start firstly with your impressions of Rousseau's theory. Does anybody feel like they want to kind of summarize his philosophy on personhood or nature? Well, he says I'm 42. Truman gives it the, the, the Rousseau describes it as the noble savage. I, mean, I don't know if you agree with this definition, but the individual in the pristine state of nature, uncorrupted by the demands of civilized society with its hypotheses and sharp uh, antithesis between outward behavior and that in, inner voice of nature is answerable to no one and free to be himself. So the noble savage is, is Rousseau's pinnacle point of understanding the human being. I think that's a really important definition. Right. How, how does that relate to yeah, yeah. Descartes' center? Rene Des- yeah. Descartes. Ray- Rene Descartes centered uh, the the uh, uh, he centered. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the word. 
um, how we determine the, the, the epistemo the the epistemological reality in the middle of the person that mm-hmm. he tried to falsify that he got to that I think therefore I am mm-hmm. by saying hey I'm going to doubt everything mm-hmm. and then realized I can't doubt my own thinking otherwise I have no I have yes. no framework by which to judge anything yeah. um, which was revolutionary <laughs> because it moved yeah. uh, from an external truth to right. an internal truth right yeah. and set uh, set the uh, the table mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Rousseau. Yeah. So I, then, well, sorry. Well, I I would say that in addition to that, the the main theological idea that comes out of his thinking would be Cartesian dualism. And so the mm-hmm. idea that a person is both a mind and a body, mm-hmm. and that the mind is an emergent property of the body. Mm-hmm. And so on Cartesian dualism, the mind is inseparable from the body. And there are believers today who think that when you die, <clears throat> this just is the true story. The true story about mind-body dualism is that your mind stays with your body. That is, your immaterial stays with your material self. Mm. Right. So the, how it comes through in theology is through Cartesian dualism, but the Thomistic dualism is the antithesis to that. So it's the idea, St. Thomas Aquinas who said, yes, it's true that the mind is an emergent property of the body, or, simul- or, or the view of simultaneity, that is, when the body is formed, the mind is formed, but also that the mind is separable. The mind is separable. Mm. Therefore, your soul is not your body. Your self, your true self, is not your body. Mm. So is that wrong, though? I mean, is, it, is the idea of mind-body dualism, is that a wrong idea? Mm. I would. I want to say like I want to have it my cake and eat it too. I want to say both and mm. yeah. in the sense that I think the Bible does distinguish mind, body, soul. Really, probably soul and body, but that's a different discussion. Uh, <laughs> it's tripartite. Too. Yeah, but uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> but it also presents us as whole persons. Yeah. You know, we're we're created as embodied souls, and so uh, I think right the Cartesian dualism presses the distinction too much where it wants to separate them a ton. Yeah. Where I think what I always see biblically is that those are to be held together, and there's a reason that with the curse of the fall, that death comes, our bodies are destroyed, or die eventually, right? right? But then, um, you know, our souls go to be with the Lord. But then the, the resurrection takes place, right? We have resurrected bodies, and so the idea is that these are to be together yeah. um, rather mm-hmm. than separate. And so and I think in many ways the one affects the other. Body affects soul, soul affects body. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think that is that definitely is he- Hebrew theology on mind-body dualism, yeah. immaterial and material interacting. Um, but the idea Daniel pointed out that the idea of "I think, therefore I am." Mm-hmm. W- what What are the implications of that? Yeah. Well, like I said, it it, it centers the uh, the filter for truth yeah. within the person and not in any external. Yeah. In any external source, or at least the primary is yeah. internal. Yeah, and so yeah, that foundation allows Rousseau to basically say his two main things. Yeah, he's going to identify or the identity <coughs> in the inner psychological self of the individual, right? So, if you're centering truth, as Daniel said from Descartes, centering truth in yourself, then whatever you think about yourself, that's your identity, right? Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. he says, secondly, society. Or culture exerts exerts a corrupting influence on the self environment yeah. environment yeah so 
whatever you're thinking about yourself there, you're, you're feeling that to be true. That's the truth. And if anybody outside of you, any external truth is telling you something different, that's a corrupting influence. Yeah. I mean, Rousseau was big on that, yeah. especially in his educational theory, which we'll get into in a second. Yeah. Uh, the idea is you go from, I think, therefore I am to the, the mantra, <clears throat> man is born free. Mm. That was Rousseau's uh, mantra. Yeah. And also look inside yourself. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. if that's true, then you look inside yourself for truth. And also you look inside yourself for goodness by rejecting the doctrine of original sin. And mm. so why is that view problematic, which he, he definitely did. So why is that view problematic, Pastor James, from a Christian point of view? I mean, if you, <clears throat> biblically, if you tell people to look within themselves to find their true purpose, meaning, significance, and we biblically understand that the Bible teaches us that we are desperately wicked, then you're looking into a pit of your own despair. Yeah. And it will lead to nothing but despair and hopelessness, whereas you try to attempt to understand your created intention without looking at the creator. Yeah. And that's just, biblically, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. That's great. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's... Yeah, it doesn't it's work. It's sad or, I don't know, if maybe ironic, I don't know, uh, that, you know, Rousseau is in Geneva... And there's a statue of Rousseau in Geneva. Mm, And though there is a small statue tucked away of the reformers, Mm. Calvin doesn't take center stage, even though his doctrine is what we need to to settle our hearts on and our Mm. mind on. Yeah, that's right. So you mentioned last week the doctrine of uh, total depravity. Can you elucidate that? Uh, Do you guys want to chime in and just tell us what what did Calvin mean by that doctrine Mm. and what did he not mean? Mm. Let's start with what it doesn't mean. Anybody want to take a crack at that? It doesn't mean that every single person is the worst possible mm-hmm. version of themselves because of sin. Yeah, right? that's a good answer. It doesn't mean that, um, yeah, you you in and of yourself are the, yeah, I don't know how to say it, the worst possible version of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we hear total depravity and we just think, well, n- no matter what, I'm absolutely horrible, 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 yeah, yeah. right? And, and really, I think, well, now I'm going to the positive side, so I'll stop there. <laughs> Well, no, you're right yeah. about that. Uh, Cal- I think the way that Calvin put it was, uh, a person is not at once as bad as they could possibly be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And that and that is true. So that's the Institutes of Christian Religion. And he held that view mm-hmm. until he got to writing his commentary on Romans, hmm. in which case he does present a view of a person as as corrupt and bad as they could possibly be. Hmm. Um, so, so there... Well, yeah, I would say corrupt and bad, but not... Yeah. In the sense that, like, um, nothing left redeemable. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Nothing left redeemable, right. or mm-hmm. um, you know, I kind of think of more, I guess, the practical. Like, um, clearly, we're not acting on it, right? Nonstop, right? nonstop. Yeah. We're not uh, murdering one another, nonstop, right. right? There's a restraining in some sense, and so that's where I was going. We're not completely mm. animalistic in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Even in that, though, we also, I mean. Just because individuals are not going out and murdering, mm-hmm. um, the heart is still desperately wicked. And what's the most outrageous claim a sinner can make is that I am right mm-hmm. in my own standing. Yeah. Correct, yeah. So when someone says, well, I'm a pretty good person, yeah, that's 
just as bad yeah. <laughs> as murdering someone. Yeah. Because you're claiming to the holy God that you're good enough. Yeah. Um, and you're so, telling him he's a liar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, if you <laughs> Which say you I have would not think on the liar, good and yeah. bad scale yeah. would be super bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. The, the example I give to to younger people is um, it's like a rat has gotten onto a pizza. Oh, here comes the pizza. <laughs> oh, gross. And has, I love it. And has <laughs> urinated and defecated oh, on oh, every man. on every slice of the pizza. Gross. That pizza is so is nasty. ruined. Mm. Now, are there parts of that pizza that technically you could dig through and and find, you know, yes, that that would still be edible? Yes, but for all intents and purposes, yeah. every every component of that pizza has been ruined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Complete <laughs> Or utter depravity would be the pizza is made from rat feces. Can I make a note? And that's not and that's not true. (laughs) It's total in its expanse of corruption, but Mm. it's not total in its depth of the corrupting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So So total depth of corruption. The doctrine of total depravity. That's a crude analogy, but (laughs) my apologies. (laughs) Super gross, but actually very effective because essentially what you're saying there and what Pat was articulating is that the doctrine of total depravity is that every faculty of the human being has been so thoroughly corrupted by sin that we could offer nothing. There's nothing that a human being could offer to God that would be produce righteousness or be acceptable before God. And and thus, every—so what are the faculties that have been corrupted in sin? Well, obviously, our mental faculties. The way we think, Mm. Paul repeatedly says in Romans chapter 1— that our minds have become darkened, like our thinking has become worthless and futile in sin, right? Mm-hmm. So it's also the physical faculty. Men mm-hmm. die, and they don't come back. Uh, it's also our emotional faculties. This is mm-hmm. why we cannot accept Rousseau's teaching um, that a person is essentially an, a pure uh, acorn, mm-hmm. and all you need to do is... <laughs> plant them into the ground, and they will grow into a mighty moral tree. Mm. Now, mm-hmm. to his credit, he did believe in objective morality, right. yeah. and he did believe in the existence of the soul, But even though he was an Enlightenment-era naturalist. But he did believe that there was an actual nature that a person could conform themselves to, um, and that it was an objective moral standard. But the key was not to turn them into an environment that inculcates that in them or teaches that in them. The key was to let them naturally explore their own education and their Mm -hmm. own selves and to become in touch with with their own sort of uh, uh, self, actually. And, and, And then they would just naturally grow into whatever their purest nature mm-hmm. was, mm. which was essentially good and essentially moral. And this is why the Christian doctrine is averse to this. Now, mm-hmm. are, there are churches that actually teach this. They mm-hmm. hold this view of the essential goodness uh, mm-hmm. or the essential moralness of the human being. Um, but I would say there is uh, an idea here that our environment does shape our nature. How would that be true? I would say the sinner who is turned loose into a sinful environment or raised in a sinful environment only becomes much more so. Is that is that right? I would think so, yeah. 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 And I would say that a person who is raised in a godly environment where the gospel is preached and the gospel is taught 
has a better chance of responding to the gospel and and responding to the word of God. Environment does matter, in other words, it really does. Yeah, I think it. You know, I think of it. We we're at church, and I think here you guys are going through New City Catechisms yeah. with the kids. We're doing it for our whole church. Um, and I use the illustration for catechisms like you're building a fire and you're putting kindling on mm-hmm. the fire. Yeah. Um, and you put the paper in, you put the kindling on top, you get it all ready, and then you light it, and all that kindling then ignites. Yeah. Similarly, our environment can serve as kindling. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. uh, catechisms can serve as kindling put on the fire, but the Holy Spirit, by the mm-hmm. divine decree of the Almighty, is the one who ignites the mm-hmm. flame. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I wanted to read a section of this that I thought was particularly funny. Uh, on page 41, it says, Again, Rousseau expresses his ra- this rather neatly in his work, The Social Contract. Man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. This is, of course, complete nonsense. Of all creatures on the face of the earth, human beings are born remarkably dependent on others, and that for a remarkably long period of time. Specifically, we are utterly dependent on our parents from birth for some years. No newborn child left alone to its own devices will survive more than a few days at most. One might therefore respond to Rousseau by saying, man is born utterly dependent on others, but everywhere tries to persuade himself that such an obvious fact is actually not true. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's Mm -hmm. the sort of radical individualism. It's the idea that every institution stands in opposition to my personal Mm -hmm. self-authority. But if that's true, what are the implications of that? I think he, he brings this up in that very paragraph or chapter. The implication of that is never ending strife because we're surra- we come into a world with external not only ex- uh, we, we come into the world not only being dependent on external yeah. uh, realities for our very existence, but also a, a external authorities like yeah, parents. Well, well and, and, and it's for our good, right? My daughter, if allowed to do everything that she wanted to do, would eat candy. And stay yeah. awake for the rest of her life. Yeah, yeah. She would die. Right. Um, and so there's an authority that I have that is good and loving and tender and careful and you know and caring for her in saying, No, Clementine, it's time for you to go to bed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so. and and laying that law down. But her she perceives it as she's come into yeah. conflict with some kind of institutional right. authority and it's denying her her ability for self-actualization. And, and so Rousseau would say ba- the analogy that you just gave is exactly the opposite of what he taught about the educational developmental stages of a child hmm. which are if you look into that it is so wrong-headed and was adopted by John Dewey hmm. um mm-hmm. And then it just became what we now know of today as liberal education. That is the liberal education revolution. Started with John Dewey, late 1800s, early 1900s. But he is very dependent on Rousseau's ideology. But Rousseau taught explicitly that a child is not to learn rote facts, or any brute facts, uh, up until the age of 13. Instead, what they're to do is they're to be turned loose into their environment, and they're to just discover themselves. And as they get in touch with nature, their true nature grows naturally into this pure, moral, uh, uh, useful person. So this is where uh, person. I, I would say his philosophy and, and the is... And the, uh, the analogy he gives, actually, is the practice of parents at the time of swaddling children or babies 
tightly in, in swaddling blankets. And so he, he would say, do not do that. Do not put any parameters on Clementine or your children. Let that child reach out. Let that child scratch themselves if they want. Let that child scream and cry and do everything they can. Don't put any parameters on the child because the child is trying to just discover its true, essentially good nature. Now, obviously, we th- we think that's crazy talk. Like that that doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Um, that you would that you would do that. In addition to that, we now know beyond the peradventure of a doubt that character is set by the age of four or five, mm-hmm. and, and that essential principles that a person learns in order for them to become a lifelong learner, they have to be set by the age of 13. Mm. And so he's advocating in his education system, do not begin to educate people in facts or anything that pertains to adulthood or adult life. Don't begin to do it until age 13, but that's when the Jews bar bar mitzvahed or bat mitzvahed their kids. That's when other Mm. traditions, that's when those traditions typically transitioned their children into adulthood already having obtained the contents of their their cultural tradition. So this is now just, this philosophy is not workable. Hmm. It doesn't work. And it has been demonstrated over the 20th century to have failed, utterly failed. Yeah. How dare you, sir? (laughs) The the education (laughs) system uh, within within America, it's it's failed. so let's talk a little bit about romanticism. Real quick, real quick. Yeah, Patrick had something he wanted to. Uh, well, the untenable nature of the philosophy is that it it prioritizes the individual. We've already, we agreed on that, but then it denies that other people are part of your environment. Yeah. Mm. So parents, other adults, it has to deny that because he sees them purely as an adversary, mm. adversarial so, role. But you, as a parent, we <coughs> clearly would believe that we are a part of their environment. But he denies that that is a so natural kind of, thing. Point. Kind yeah. of built into it is a denial of other people's moral virtue. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to go with that. How, the how irony so? of it. What do you mean? Yeah. So yeah, so if if society is comprised of individuals, and society begins to put boundaries, mores, customs, that that are a corrupting influence. To the the uh, the moral na- the intrinsic moral nature of the noble savage born free into the into the world, you're den- the implication is is you're denying that the other person is a morally is a morally virtuous being. No. That so so built into the, baked into the cake is not only are you are you you know deifying your own in a way deifying your own personality. You are denigrating and condemning everybody else who would give any input to that. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. right. And this is one more thing. I was just going to tie back to your original question of how can a doctor who, um, you know, hears from somebody that yeah. they feel this way, and now they can be actually like prosecuted. I think this is the irony of the statement that Daniel was reading from forty-one. You know, man is born free, yet everywhere he is in change, chains, and the last. 300 years right so when he's writing that he feels a societal pressure of like good and godly norms customs right mm-hmm. and just think of who is doing the chains now right everything is flipped right where we are the ones who um basically if we don't conform yeah right they, they're the ones like holding the chains so to speak it, it is tyranny um, yeah. actually <clears throat> yeah yeah 
it's a kind of uh, an activism that is turned into a tyrannical philosophy yeah. Yeah. of everyone must now conform to this philosophical bu- viewpoint. What what about romanticism? Why is romanticism? Why is that important? He mentions this kind of being the natural extension of Rousseau's philosophy, um, which is the widespread belief uh, that just grants authority to feelings. That is to say, since our highest aim is to sort of realize or actualize ourselves as we get in touch with nature, um, that involves the inner voice revealed in human nature. Um, so, so, So how does his section on romanticism or the romantic philosophy uh, following Rousseau. Well, so Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Rousseau essentially transformed that and said, I feel, (laughs) therefore it is. Right. And then the romantics took that, and they used the arrow and harp. That's the image and picture, that you are strings in the wind, and once the wind blows over you, And what is that again? He mentioned Well, it's a harp that would be placed, it's... um, Ancient version, ancient, it's a couple <laughs> centuries ago, yeah. version of wind chimes. Yeah. You would have strings, a harp outside, and as the wind blew over it, it would resonate in such a frequency and produce I want sound. one of those. He Man, described that. Great. I'm like, I want to <laughs> hang one of those nice. in my backyard. got to do a wind chime first. <laughs> romantics pictured the world or every individual as that harp, and so we needed to involve ourselves and place ourselves in nature so that we can be the true, we can resonate at our true frequency of who we are. Wow, that's a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. Very well stated, very well stated. Um, so what is the proper biblical role of feelings then? I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously we, we want to have a biblical understanding of emotions, and feelings, because God made our emotional state. Yeah. So how does the biblical world... Yeah, Ryan, he made our emotional state. I, I heard it clearly, I agree. <laughs> Is this a conversation? <laughs> you guys okay, so what is a biblical view, then, <clears throat> of the expression of the self, the expression of individual emotions? Well, I, so I, I think one of the things I've been noticing in, this, in rereading this um, is that there are things that are true... That are that Rousseau that Rousseau got, Rousseau got correct. Descartes got correct. That you know the other the other philosophers and and theorists Half truths. right. Well, they're they're true, and then they take them and they make them the maximal truth. Yeah, by which all other truth is is Paradigm. decided. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, it's all centered in interiorly. And so, having an external uh, standard by which to judge your emotions. To say, do these emotions comport with reality? Do they comport with God's, you know, with God's will? Mm-hmm. Um, that that is the proper function of them. There to give color and and life and and uh, yeah, you know, they're to fill in the lines with with texture and contrast and all that sure. stuff. But they're to be within lines. They're to be within the lines that um, that the Lord has established. And having an external standard by which to judge that is crucial. Sure. I think that what is the first commandment? You know, Jesus was asked this question, what is the first commandment? What is it? And how does it relate to our emotional life? Well, it's to it's the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 10. Mm-hmm. It's love the Lord your God with all that you are. Mm-hmm. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, everything. And in doing so, as you love the Lord your God 
with all of you are, you bring all that you are, including your emotional state, under the lordship of Jesus, right? And under the and you surrender that now to His Word. But it doesn't mean you become an an unemotional automaton. You know, like you just turn into this sort of religious robot. Um, they, they need to be subjected. <laughs> is this an argument? Why <laughs> don't I go round and round on this all the time? With I think the, feelings, with the role of, of I think feelings are so powerful. So take the romantics. Mm-hmm. All they knew, they see in a dimly lit room. So that's what you're describing. Yeah, that's right. They see dim shadows and try to make sense of it all. But because emotions and feelings were so powerful, they had to come up with an, a, a, an explanation for why are they powerful. If they're that powerful, therefore they must be the most important. But backtrack that, and we look in the Christian worldview. Well, feelings are more are super powerful, but they're extremely fickle. Yeah, they change. I seem to have no control over them. They're fallen. and they're purely reactionary. Mm-hmm. So we would then press into that and say, well, if that's the case, because of our view of total depravity, something needs to be of a higher and greater value. Right. Yeah. And Paul establishes that in Romans. Mm-hmm. Our thinking, our minds, that's- and that we see the cogs turn. It starts with our thoughts, then leads to our actions, followed by feelings. And you said it in a sermon yesterday. Yeah. If you don't feel it, first obey, and feelings will come second. We know that, but yeah. we have special revelation that has lit the room to that understanding. So well, that's I don't blame the romantics. Pat. That's but. that's a great. Everything you just said is exactly right. I think it's. I don't even need to comment on it, other than to say that's a very excellent way to put it, and very succinct. I will just make one comment, (laughs) (laughs) which which is, uh, yes, if Paul's doctrine, I want to say not Calvin's, Paul's doctrine of total depravity, because Calvin got it from Paul, but Mm -hmm. if Paul's doctrine of total depravity, which I think he describes in Romans 1 through 3, Mm -hmm. is correct, then as James has said, the heart is corrupt. Just because I feel it doesn't mean it's Mm -hmm. true, and it doesn't mean it it comports with my reality. I, I could be feeling something right now, I could be feeling angry at God mm-hmm. for cancer, yeah. over, for anything that has come to my doorstep. But that doesn't mean that my anger toward the Lord is justified. That's sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so again, this is taking one of those, one of those uh, components of truth and blowing it out, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you do see the heart is desperately wicked above all things. What happens 20 chapters later? I'm going to give you a new heart. <laughs> Amen. I'm going to give you a new heart. <laughs> Amen. Right? So, so there Amen. is an element of our emotions are sanctified in that. Mm. Right. Our emotion, we're given, you Being know, sanctified. And our, <laughs> but that's, so that's <laughs> yeah. the question. To Paul what, says, has to what degree? Yeah. To what degree? You yeah. know, again, we get the discussion, are we sinners saved by grace or are we redeemed saints who struggle with sin? You know, like to what degree is this? Is the mm-hmm. Christian life a fundamentally stoic experience, or is it about living in redeemed emotion? You know, because yeah. and again, you can't live by emotion. Like that's not at all. Sure, yeah. um, but there, mm-hmm. but those things are given to give. I mean, I do things when I feel like doing them. Right. You know, I also do things when my mind tells me this, this must be right. accomplished and it's the right thing to do. Well, as Pat was um, saying, it's mm-hmm. obedience first, feelings follow. I did say that yesterday, didn't you I? Did. Um, it's like, man, I like that quote. Man, I love that. <laughs> Who did you get that from? Hannah, uh, we should put that but on ultimately, the uh, you know, This goes back to page 41 that man is have no change. Mm-hmm. In order for me to feel properly, I must know the truth. Therefore, I'm dependent upon an external source to yeah. provide what that truth is. So right. baked mm-hmm. into the cake of creation is dependency. And that was mm-hmm. good. 
And no. so yeah, we yeah. get down the yeah. road of utter depravity and independence mm-hmm. is the God of the age. Yeah. I want to be God into myself. And so I have to throw off the shackles of dependency, but Man, it's good. so good. You're yeah. nailing it yeah. today. It's You're good. on fire. Uh, can yeah. I just say, that I want to go back to something James said about total depravity because I love talking about total depravity. Um, <laughs> It's the new name of our podcast. On the one hand, I want to agree with Calvin's definition in the Institutes. But on the other hand, I agree with his articulation of it in the Romans commentary. And I think I, you know, all throughout the Roman series, I've I've read I've been reading Calvin a lot just along with whatever other scholars, Schreiner and and the others, Douglas Moo that I've been reading. But I want to say this. I think that it is true that there is what Callan referred to as the census is it's census divinitas or census divinitatis. Mm-hmm. I forget which one of those it is. But there there's a kind of image. That's what he meant by the image of God, re- residual image mm-hmm. of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want to say yes, Amen. Of course, the Bible teaches that In Genesis chapter nine, God says, "Do not kill." A human being because they are made in the image of God. Well, this is way past the fall, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yes. But at the same time, when you look back at the story of Noah, uh, why did God bring that regional flood, that mm-hmm. massive <laughs> flood? Yeah. The reason He did so is because every inclination of the heart had turned to sin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think there is a sense in which. Without God giving us some restraint, and I would argue in the Ten Commandments, you know, uh, Moses is preached in all the cities, right, that the proliferation of the Ten Commandments and some of the holiness codes in Leviticus, I would say apart from God putting the brakes externally, just putting the brakes on human sin, mm-hmm. we would just annihilate ourselves. Mm-hmm. We would extinguish ourselves. So I don't think that total depravity is just the idea that every human faculty is sufficiently corrupt. That's that's true. Of course mm-hmm. that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's apart from a restraining. And then yeah. look at Second Thessalonians 2, where Paul says, there's going to come a time when this person called the man of lawlessness comes, right? And then there's this great, just to get into eschatology, because that's apostasy. super fun, uh, but then <laughs> this, this great rebellion, this apostasy is going to happen, and then the one who restrains him currently is going to be taken away. You don't think that was Claudius restraining Nero? A very, very well could be. I, I, I'm, I'm just yeah, saying... Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, I, actually, I think it is God. I, I think it is taking away a restraining, the Holy Spirit's restraining influence in a culture, and, and now people are just allowed to fully realize their sinful self. Dude, I mean, and this look, is what you see in Revelation, actually. Mm-hmm. Look look what's happened in the 15 years since smartphones were introduced to society. Mm-hmm. So society looks nothing like what it did. You're, you're right. It's been mm-hmm. completely revolutionized towards... Now, there's some great things. Yeah. But... Has it been a net positive? (laughs) In terms of the proliferation and accessibility of information, if you're you're judging it from that angle, sure. I mean, it's great to just literally take out your phone and look anything up and have facts. Like we were watching a Dateline episode last night, and 
and it was about some lady who had been killed. And the theory was there was an owl in a tree that attacked her at her front door and just scarred her head up, basically scalped her, and she died before she got help. And then they blamed the husband. Uh, so right then and there, I took out my cell phone. Carrie was like, that's a stupid theory. And I said, Carrie, <laughs> did you know that 200 people a year die from owl? <laughs> from, <laughs> from owl attacks? Owl attacks. <laughs> well, there's another thing I got to live in fear of now. <laughs> another phobia? In other words, the point is, <laughs> the point is that um, it's great to have access to just anything we want. Yeah. To know. So this, yeah, this isn't the um, this isn't a, a diatribe on technology. It's the what have we used technology for? So yes. along with yeah. the proliferation of that information has come what the proliferation of pornography, oh, yeah. Yeah. the yeah. underground. I mean the the black market the trade of, you know of, of drugs and people. I mean. You're we, right. We use these things, yeah. and it enables like these. The you know technology enables us to actually yeah. proliferate our wickedness. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're you're mm -hmm. right. You're right. So the question yeah. is, what is the restraining principle to human depravity that we see there, leading up to Genesis six, where they're just so depraved? I mean, they have to be wiped out. Every inclination of the mind of the yeah. heart is geared toward their own sin, uh, such that God sees that the vast majority of these people are irredeemable that he has mm. to judge them yeah. he has to wipe them out i mean that's pretty sad mm. uh with the exception of noah and his family but then also so what is the limiting principle and then what is the what is the limiting force or the energy i i hate to use these terms but what what is really actually holding people back from fully realizing their most sinful impulses and desires the grace of god grace yeah. of god both external and in in form of their conscience but yeah. I, wouldn't you say the most tangible representation of that though is god's special continual special revelation to his people after noah we have abraham being yeah, called right. out we have him the prophets continuing to come we have his word so a very tangible one i would start there that we have his people constant relationship with him that we are we potentially might be the force holding the world back at and at bay yeah i think you're right corruption. about that totally totally right about that Hmm. Um, I do think it can go beyond that, certainly. Yeah. But I, I would see us as... So, so, so do you see that the existence, no matter how persecuted the church becomes in our nation or any nation, you see the church as being a, res a restraint, an inherent restraint? Well, I, I can definitely see it. I know when, if you were to watch, and we've talked about this before, when Jordan Peterson talks about the Bible being the foundation of Western culture... Yeah, it is. Therefore, yep. if that's the air Western culture breeze, n no wonder we have a sense of morality no matter where we go in the right. Western world. Right. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's a staying force. Yeah, you're right about way. that. But you're I also right think, I think a, you know, when you have a redeemed community, um, it helps you to live out rightly like, from mm -hmm. your emotions. Because, you know, when you're in a community of people, there are people who are able to say, oh, hey, brother, you're... Your anger in this is un, is unrighteous. Yeah, like this is this doesn't comport with the reality of the situation yeah. or the reality of God's will. Like, um, and so having a community like a church who are being renewed, who are in the process of actively engaging with that external thing that we need, mm -hmm. um, yeah, is a restraining right. force. Yeah. It, it it is it is it is helpful. And this is Truman's point in his conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. When he talks about Augustine and Justin Martyr talking about the church, right. Christians make the they should make the best um, citizens. Yeah, uh, they should be the most moral. They should be contributing in a positive way to the culture. Um, 
and they should be moral and promoting the law. And exactly. Things like that. So. Well, yes, Christians are the best farmers. They're the best scientists. Thank They're you. the best artists. And the reason is because... <laughs> They're the best looking and the funny. <laughs> <laughs> the believer, wherever he goes and whatever endeavor he engages, can sanctify that endeavor unto mm-hmm. the Lord. We yeah. can we can have a sanctifying uh, force. So, well, I think well, I think this is part of the attack against the church. So, uh, mm-hmm. on forty, he says, "If society is the problem because it perverts and corrupts the individual, then society's institutions are the tool by which this is accomplished." I think that the, that's one of the reasons why there's such an assault on the church, where the church has moved from an institution of trust and and general favor. Part of the part of the the progress of, of this and the activism has been specifically to undermine the trustworthiness of the mm-hmm. church. The church yeah. has done plenty of things to yeah, sure. facilitate yeah. that yeah. distrust yeah. too. Like yeah. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say that we're you know we're innocent, but it's why there is a directed assault. You know, and yeah, yes, but that's we, why we're reformed and reforming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. always reforming. Uh, we're not perfect. We're not totally sanctified yet. Mm-hmm. until we're glorified. And so even though we fail, we fail our culture. I mean, we do stupid things. Mm-hmm. We revert back to our old nature and desire sinful things sometimes as the church. But the thing is, is that overall, I think we have a sanctifying presence mm-hmm. uh, in whatever culture we find ourselves. Absolutely. He raises the issue. So, so one issue is authority, authorizing he uses the phrase authorizing <clears throat> the inner self, authorizing its feelings. And then he uses the word valorizing. Hmm. Now, I think that those are two word. very interesting, but related to different, but related terms. It's one thing to say, I'm authorized, like I'm Permission. justified yeah. in, in defining myself according to my feelings that's one thing yeah. it's another thing to say now let's make this let's let's make this uh a valorizing aspect of our culture mm-hmm. let's ennoble <laughs> no, the person yeah. let's reshape it in our image yes um your th- any thoughts on that and and the fact that you see in our culture today you've got several there, there are several expressions or manifestations of this, one of them being the noble victim. Uh, yeah. The noble victim, you've got the noble self, the yeah. noble individual, and uh, the noble self-authority, and all this kind of stuff. What is, what is your reaction to the idea that we are not just authorizing it, we're valorizing it? We're, this, this has now become a virtue. Yeah. I think that's the natural outworking of what I was trying to say earlier, probably not well though, just the reversal of those, uh, man is free everywhere, but, but the chains, right. The natural outworking of that is those that disagree, uh, start pushing back against culture. Um, that can't be valorous. That can't be approved. Right. And so we have to embrace it or we are bigoted and throw whatever adjective you want in there. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I think all of this fundamentally comes back down to, you know, the authorizing, the valorizing, all of it comes down to, and really all of this entire book is a fundamental disregard for the creator creature distinction. Yeah. Where we, as the uh, creature, want to do everything that the creator wants or is allowed to do, right? Yeah. We is tying it back to the garden, right? And, but whenever you don't have that distinction in your mind at all, 
all of these things will come. Yeah. Um, and, but aren't so, we image bearers, though? Aren't we supposed totally. to be imitate, yeah, imitators we are, of God, Ephesians right? 5.1? Yeah, we are. But that's exactly right. We imitate the Creator by acknowledging that He's the Creator. Yeah. And whenever that doesn't happen, we look to ourselves to be the true Creator, and we tie everything, authority, valorizing back to that. So that's why even what you were saying earlier, you know, Christians are the best scientists, Christians are the best artists. Well, there's brilliant people out there that aren't Christians, of right? Course. We acknowledge that. Of course, we But the reason that. that they're the best is because they have the creator-creature distinction down, yeah. and they're doing all of those things under uh, a right understanding of who God is, what he's done, and how we fit properly into society. Yeah, yeah. I th- boy, well said. That's, a, that's very well said. Um, shifting to some questions here, are we saying that it is always wrong to express our individuality? I thought he was going to say emotion. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if the problem is my highest, my highest authority is myself, my, my most valorous, um, ennoble or ennobled expression is, is the manifestation of my true self, whatever I think my nature is, according to my feelings— what is a biblical view of individuality? It, do we have one? Or are we just a collective? I brought this up a couple of Sundays ago, just a pop quiz. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I think in, proper individuality is still affirming that I am one piece of a greater whole. Yeah. And that's first in connection with the Lord. I'm, I'm his image bearer. But then two, I, my environment is around other individuals, but we piece together. We, we are united yeah. As creatures, and that's, and that's like it is self kind of self actualization, self discovery in obedience and yeah, in relationship to way. the Creator. Because mm-hmm. it's interesting, one of the questions, the what's the first question or what the second question that God asks Adam, who told you you were yeah. naked? Mm-hmm. Right? It, clearly, there was there was this element of ungodly self discovery there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but but you know. I don't think that God was trying to to restrict all knowledge. I think He was trying to lay lay knowledge in at appropriate times and in appropriate ways. Sure. And, and all of a sudden, you see, oh, He's discovered this thing that is outside of the appropriate relationship with God. And hmm. so, I do think we were created for self discovery and right. and self actualization. That that's part of right. that's part of God's good design in us. But it was to be done yeah. in relationship to the Creator and yeah. its mission. Such a to great creator. insight. Daniel, that's a great insight, and that just reminded me that he realized before he ever sinned that he didn't have a suitable partner, which was also part of his self-discovery, and he did that quite naturally. God didn't tell him, hey, you don't have a suitable partner, just hang in there. Uh, He just came to realize, everyone else has a match, but I don't. And uh, so, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think there's nothing inherently irreligious or unspiritual about self-discovery. And this goes back to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 now, where Paul says we are individually members of one another. Yeah. And so our individuality is partially defined... um, By how God has blessed us. By how God has blessed us. Right. Mm -hmm. Individually. And And then defined in how we... I think, in terms, serve the church, serve the others with yes. that gifting. That's right. Um, because he's given us that individuality yes. now to contribute to the whole. Yeah. And this is why, fundamentally, I think the um, Descartes, Rousseau, 
romanticism as it has come into the John Dewey um, educational <sighs> philosophy from the early 20th century mm-hmm. is so pernicious. And I would say it's so pernicious because now what, it, what essentially what it has done is that it has enabled the culture to create individuals who are their own little cultural capsule. In other yeah. words, individuality <laughs> has become an end in of itself, yeah. right? Instead yeah. of the individual learning the contents and substance of their culture yeah. by learning these things, you know, yeah. in mm-hmm. elementary school. Yeah. And, and now everyone is so radically individualized yeah. that they're, it is the total fragmentation of a culture. Yeah. And but I we think would that's consider how, that culture nature, but the romantics don't. And that's why they want to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah. We, culture is our part of our nature. It shapes and it forms me. Yeah. I am who I am because that wind of culture in the church blows over and I resonate if I can use that image and picture. Yeah. But they just want to deny this subset and say, no, nah, that, doesn't, that doesn't count. Well, well, you're right about that. I mean, the individual and the collective if I could use Star Trek terminology just for a second. <laughs> but the individual and the group, they're mute, they have a mutually interpreting yeah. relationship. The group can't <laughs> function without the individuals enabled and empowered to do what individuals do, yeah. just like a body and your body parts. Yeah. That's why well, that's a, such a brilliant analogy. It's that a Paul holy uses. codependence, right? Yeah. It's a God intended codependence. Interdependence. Yeah. Interdependence. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I think it's probably a better word yeah, there. Probably. Well, um, uh, yeah. Truman talks about it on 41. He says we should note one another implication of this, talking about Rousseau's uh, philosophy. Uh, if the original pristine individual is the truly authentic me, then not just institutions, but every other person stands in a naturally adversarial relationship to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is first and foremost a potential threat to my authenticity. Yeah. And the question that I wrote there was, what does this do to a society? Oh, yeah. What does this do to the yeah. concept of, of we are, you know, the, the citizens of, we you know, we are a church, yeah. we are a, you know, like yeah. what it immediately fragments it. Yes. Destroys it. What does are the it at the family level? It does it at the, mm, at the, right. the, the, the township and state. Yeah. And, you know. But how do you see it in American culture today? How has that that you oh, just read manifested in the tribalism yeah. of uh, groups and constituencies constantly at war? <laughs> I mean, how... Hmm. I mean, obviously, we see that manifest in our society, right? Well, you see people who... If, if you... I only partner with those who give me unconditional affirmation. Right. Who are who have who are self confessed no mm-hmm. threat to my authentic self. Good way to put it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even potential threats, right? If you don't embrace my understanding of myself and I can see you over there doing something, even though it might not be bothering me, that still has to be taken down. Right. Yeah. You but see, inevitably right? you see with businesses even, like even within those tribes, someone's going to offend me over something. Yeah. So I think it ultimately leads to isolation and pure loneliness. Slaughtered on the altar of cancel culture. Well yeah. but is it true yeah, sure. statistically that our culture is more lonely today than it's ever been? It no, it, it is can, even can though we? we have the proliferation of what we call social media. Yeah. It's yeah. not social at all. It's not socialable. Yeah. It doesn't foster koinonia. It doesn't foster fellowship. Mm-mm. It fosters, especially that cesspool called Twitter, mm. right? That Click ideological cesspool away. called yeah. Twitter. 
yeah. that Ryan literally sends me <laughs> every day. I send you encouraging things. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's he anything the encouraging on it. I find the one tweet. You find the one tweet in the. Oh, look, I found the a, diamond in, in the yeah. sewer. Ocean of I found, sewage. I find the good piece of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> but but here's the problem: How is the self reflection of Rousseau and Romanticism different? than we find in Psalms and Paul. So he mentions Psalms mm-hmm. and Paul. Mm-hmm. Pastor. Well, I mean, it's it goes back to that when we were talking about total depravity and the list of faculties that have been corrupt. I mean, that list is the greatest commandment. Right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Those faculties have all been corrupted by sin. And so when we have emotions, just like David does in the Psalms, I mean, the Psalms contain every emotion that we could ever every. feel. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember praying Psalms 13. How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? Right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the reality that we take our emotions to the Lord with their raw tangibility, and we say, Lord, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Here it is. Here's how I'm feeling. Yeah. And then the Word of God, as Jesus prays for us in John 17, Mm-hmm. sanctify them with your word, right? Mm-hmm. And we're yeah, sanctified yeah. by the word, and that's the purification. And then we come, hopefully, through those emotions to a s- solid standing before God of saying, but right. you are good, mm-hmm. you are my father, right? Mm-hmm. you are for me, you are with me in any circumstance. And isn't yeah. that how the self-reflection of the psalmist always ends up? Right. No matter what he's expressing in terms of his raw emotions to right. God, feeling mm-hmm. abandoned, like mm-hmm. you said, so many psalms that talk about feeling abandonment or feeling even just depression or mm-hmm. anxiety or what, mm-hmm. whatever the emotions are there, mm-hmm. they end in, but God, you are good, and I know you have right. a yeah. plan, and, and yeah. I trust in you. They bring yeah. their emotions to the truth. And right. submit to the them truth. to yeah. Even right. if they the God, don't, there's two psalms, mm-hmm. Psalm 88 and 89, which don't come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. It leaves it open-ended. And so there's something to me, the reason why that's included in the psalms is because there will be moments in life where there is no immediate conclusion or I don't have access to it. But the psalmist never comes to a point of blaming, Mm -hmm. arguing with, but they do come to a place where I need to mentally assent to this is what God has for me. But that's what what Job does. Isn't that the lesson of the book of Job? I mean, we get to the end of that book and realize (laughs) God's answer is, I'm God. (laughs) Why did this happen to me? But it's clear that both Job and the psalmist are processing it in the context of there being a creator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, yes. they're processing right. it with the Lord. They're, pro- they're, they're trying to reconcile to an external thing. Right. They're trying to reconcile, yeah. okay, you've told me you're good, and yet here's my family slaughtered. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, yeah. And so the, right. the, the processing of emotions in the context of, of doing it with the Lord, like it's, yeah. one of the, mm-hmm. it's one of the things that we tell people is, be sad, but be sad with the Lord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like ha- right. don't, don't, don't hide these things or try to, you know, block them off. Yeah. 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 And yeah. you're, you're right concerning 88 and 89 and they end, I think that's important to just allowing all of scripture to inform us, not just having 88 and 89, yeah. right? They end book three of the Psalms, book four of the Psalms opened up, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it a, it's, it's not mm-hmm. ultimately into there, but I know what you're saying. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I think it's powerful that in Jesus on the road to Emmaus gives us a good insight that rather than solving those two men's not road to yeah road to Emmaus their problem and their hurt and their pain and their suffering of his death he could have just revealed himself and they would have been fine. Instead, he asked the question, "What things?" 
there's a priority of him joining us in those difficult sufferings. Mm-hmm. And then they excoriate him for not knowing. <laughs> I'm like, are you the only person in Jerusalem <laughs> who do not know? Idiot. <laughs> and then, but then he says, what things? Tell me about them. But he could mm-hmm. have solved it by just revealing himself. That's mm-hmm. a really good passage. I think that's illustrative use of the passage. But that's a really good illustration of how just Jesus gives them a little time to process. He gives them a little time to pour out their heart before, and he doesn't <clears throat> reveal himself until he gets to the, the oh, hotel. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, or the inn, and they're sitting over dinner, and then he disappears, mm-hmm. and, and they uh, back. they're like, yeah. "Whoa, that was Jesus!" And uh, so good. So I think there's a tendency to to make Christianity a, a a Stoic endeavor. Yeah, and I don't think that that is is correct. I think that God does care about our emotion and and has layered it into us. I have a question about this. To Hold be fair, on, I, I want to ask I think the you, what do you is mean? Just on the flip side as well. It oh, can you know what I mean? No, to be. make so, it pure romanticism. Yeah. yeah. Well, I emotional binging yeah. is not biblical There's a healthy either. Middle. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. what do you mean by stoicism? The uh, the idea of of we are to actually uh, subdue our emotion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That we're not to we're not to experience suppress it. it. We're and we're to order our lives in such a fashion that it actually functions yeah. to to uh, you know it's the British stiff upper lip thing of like hey don't talk about this swallow you, it. Yeah. Or or Japanese, the in Japanese culture where they just talk, they listen, swallow it, yeah, push it down, uh, don't. That's express a response it. of a zero sum game because we can't trust it, therefore we can't have it, and that's not true. Yeah, it needs yeah, to be yeah. sanctified. Mm-hmm. Well, I think those are two extremes, though. I think mm-hmm. one is we want to avoid emotional binging, which I think you see in a lot of churches today, where it's just the worship services are incomprehensible to me. Even as a former charismatic, I just think the the hour that we just spent chanting mantras and emotion giving expression to any emotion that surfaces in the heart seems patently unbiblical. But then on the other side of it, we you know shout unto God, you know yeah. rejoice in the Lord. You have these powerful mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, passages in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, that command us. To shout with the God, to shout to God with the voice of triumph, uh, which we don't do very much in in our culture today. It's very sad that we don't. Um, but the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Hmm. Explain that. Well, I think what Paul is trying to say there to the Corinthians when he says that to them is remind them this isn't the New Testament expression of your worship or preaching or anointed preaching or whatever it is, is not out of your control. Yeah. It's always under your control. And so uh, nice. stay in control, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's that, that element as well. I want to read you actually from a book that I want to encourage all of our listeners to get, and all of you as well. It was written some near years ago, and it's been updated variously by E.D. Hirsch, Jr., and it's called Cultural Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know. Hirsch wrote this book. This is a scathing critique. He wrote it originally in the 80s, but it's a scathing critique on the Rousseau, John Dewey, um, and the Cardinal Principles, what's called the Cardinal Principles uh, Educational Theory, which took over American education and actually institutionalize the things we've been talking about in the American educational system, mm-hmm. right? And so essentially, uh, in this book, he's pushing back on this to say, nope, individuals are educated 
with facts and knowledge about their culture first. And when they do that, their individuality can then make a contribution to that culture, but you gotta decide what your culture is, right? And this is what he says. Um, Children can express individuality only in relation to the traditions of their society, which they have to learn. The greatest human individuality is developed in response to a tradition, not in response to disorderly, uncertain, and fragmented education. Americans in their teens and 20s who were brought up under the individualistic theories, these individualistic theories, are not less conventional than their predecessors, only less literate, less able to express their individuality. In other words, hmm. the very thing that, you're, that they're taught to do in this educational system, where they're taught to, to discover who they are, who their real nature is according hmm. to their own feelings and desires, and then to express that individuality as an end and of itself, is actually counterproductive. It doesn't achieve the thing that they're being taught it can achieve. It's mm. only the expression of that individuality within a tradition, within a society yeah. that has a defined culture, right? And this is why the Judeo-Christian uh, Western culture is so important for us to preserve. It's so important for us uh, to maintain it and to fight for it because that tells them, as you were saying last week, there's a bigger story. There's a higher story, and that story tells us individually who and what we are. Yeah. Um, okay, I just wanted to share that. Yeah. Any thoughts? Good. <clears throat> I I'm going to keep thinking about it. No, I agree. Okay, no, yeah, I, I good. Just need to keep thinking right about it. Right on. Uh, okay, any <clears throat> other insights from this particular chapter? It was pretty short. Next chapter will be pretty big. Hmm. I, can, I want to hear Daniel's question. Oh, you know what? I don't, oh, yeah. I what don't know it? if we're going to have... Uh, I think we'll, we'll, time. We'll, be, we'll be good to circle around to it. Okay. So it's regarding music. All right. All it's right. regarding uh, the fact that music is the only thing that I can conceptualize that moves emotion apart from thought. That there is, a, there is an experience of music that actually uh, yeah, functions to... So it's a, it's okay. a question I'll, I'll formulate it and ask it better right. oh man I can't we'll wait to talk to it. that sounds fun. yeah send it to us yeah. beforehand we can think through it a little bit and that's great that's a great yeah. awesome. uh, idea okay anything else you want to share any insights you had Josh <laughs> <laughs> we left you in the dust <laughs> give, give us your thoughts on this chapter and uh, and any insights yeah no I was just happy to listen to you guys awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um I mean, I can't really think of anything that you guys didn't cover that I would have said, but yeah, I, I, I thought it was just fantastic. It was a super accurate diagnosis of yeah. society nowadays, mm. especially my generation. Um, mm. I just like seeing everything, all the all the cesspools, yeah. <laughs> Twitter, yeah, yeah. Instagram. Oh yeah, just watching everything that um, we're posting and sharing now. Yeah, yeah. So I think our only hope at this point would be a comet to hit the <laughs> hit our satellite. <laughs> he means revival. That's what he would no, say. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, a great awakening. Yeah. That would be. But God uses means, brother. That's true. Touché. I don't Touché. Yeah, that okay. might be the thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're done. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Good to thank see you guys you. again. See you guys. Bye.